Hello, this is Stephanie Walker, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the May, um, I believe it is May 8th, 2023, um, New York Times issue on the Niagara Frontier Radio Service. So the first article that I have is pretty short, moderately. It says, Racetracks, Parks, Offices, A Frantic Search for Migrant Housing. New York City officials are casting a wide net as they scramble to house the influx of migrants. The Flatiron Building said no. And the article was written by Dana Rubenstein, and again from May 8, 2023. When the real estate industry looks at the Flatiron Building, they see an internationally famous 22-story skyscraper that has sat mostly empty for four years, its value dropping in the pandemic-driven collapse of the, of the commercial office market. New York City officials, however, see something else, a potential home for the continuing influx of migrants. And so they asked Jeff Gorell, a flat iron building owner, what he thought. Mr. Gorell rejected the idea. There's no bathrooms, there's no heat, the building's been gutted, Mr. Gorell said. Facing an expected deluge of migrants in the coming weeks, an overburdened shelter system and an impossibly tight housing market, New York City officials are beginning to prove the adage or the adage that desperation breeds creativity. In recent weeks, city officials have approached major landlords, business leaders, and the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey in an effort to find spaces large enough to house substantial numbers of migrants from the southern border. By Friday, a Trump-era immigration policy called Title 42 is set to expire. The purpose of the policy was to protect public health, but it has been used to expel hundreds of thousands of migrants from the country, including those who might formally have been granted asylum. The end of the policy is expected to spur cross-border migration, eventually affecting New York City. New York City is the only major U.S. city with a right-to-shelter law. As of Wednesday evening, 61,000 migrants have come to the city in the past year, according to city hall officials. Over 37,500 of them are now in the, in the city care at more than 120 emergency shelters and eight larger scale centers. The city is now scrambling to make room for even more. Late Sunday afternoon, Mayor Eric Adams, Chief of Staff Camille Joseph Varlak, gave the head of every city agency until 5 p.m. Monday to identify any properties or spaces in your por portfolio that may be available to be repurposed to house asylum seekers as temporary shelter spaces, according to a copy of an email acquired by the Times. Those spaces should be at least 10,000 square feet in size, contain, quote, no more health hazards, and have running water. Mr. Adams underscored the urgency of the problem, telling agency leaders in a meeting Monday afternoon to alert his staff about any suitable space even if those spaces currently hosted programs. The search for help has stretched well beyond the walls of City Hall. At a hastily arranged meeting on Monday morning, city officials asked leaders of New York, of the New York real estate lobby for assistance, asking if landlords might repurpose empty office space to house migrants. I think they and different owners are going to take a look at that, said Jim Whelan, president of the Real Estate Board of New York which represents nearly every major landlord in New York City, though he warned, quote, it's not easy to do. City officials have also sought help from the Partnership for New York City, the business group whose board is populated by Wall Street executives. The city has asked the Port Authority if they could use airplane hangars to house migrants at JFK International Airport, which the Port Authority controls and is weighing whether to place tents in Central, Prospect, and Flushing Meadows Corona Parks in the parking lots of City Field, where the New York Mets play, and at Aqueduct Racetrack, or Aqueduct, according to a report in CNN that a city official confirmed on Monday. And there's a picture of migrants getting on, look, a city bus, and it says, of the 61,000 migrants who have arrived in New York in the last year, more than half remain in city care. City officials have also asked state and federal officials for a list of all armory and military bases in the city and have discussed using the now-closed Kings Park Psychiatric Center in Long Island, the city official said. They have even talked about shutting down city streets to accommodate tents 
and commissioning cruise ships, the latter an idea that has long integrated, intrigued, excuse me, the Adams administration. Many of these, these ideas are easier said than done. The city on Friday announced it would relocate some migrants to hotels in Rockland and Orange counties on a voluntary basis, a plan that local officials immediately contested. In March, the mayor announced a partnership with SUNY Sullivan, a community college in Sullivan County, to house and provide job training to 100 migrants. On Monday, Jay Constance, the SUNY Sullivan president, said that the city and the school were still in contract negotiations. Repurposing underused office space to house migrants is also complicated. It would probably require a fully empty office building, Mr. Whelan said, and even then, the buildings are designed for commercial use, not residential. It is a challenge compounded by others. This weekend alone, we received hundreds of asylum seekers every day, and with Title 42 set to be lifted this week, we expect more to arrive in our city daily, said Fabian Levy, or Levi, a spokesman for the mayor. We are considering a multitude of options, but as we've been saying for a year, we desperately need federal and state support to manage the crisis. That is the end of that article. The next article is titled, After Texas Mall Shooting, Searching for Motive and Grieving for Children. As the city of Allen mourns victims, authorities examine racist social media posts that they say belong to the gunman. This article was written by Alan Fuhrer, Adam Goldman, Neelan, Neelam, excuse me, Bora, and Livia Albeck Ripka, May 8th, 2023. And there's a picture of crowds gathered outside a mall in Allen, Texas, where a gunman opened fire on shoppers and killed at least eight people. Investigators trying to learn why a gunman fatally shot at least eight people at a Texas mall are examining a social media profile rife with hate-filled rants against women and black people that they believe belong to the gunman. The profile found on the social media site OK.RU matches a gunman's birthday and refers to, refers to a motel where he was staying before the shooting. The profile also includes language praising Hitler with references to neo-Nazi websites like the Daily Stormer. On Sunday, officials identified the gunman who was killed at the mall by a police officer as Mauricio Garcia, 33. The motive for the attack remains unclear. The police say he opened fire Saturday afternoon at the Allen Premium Outlets, a busy outdoor mall about 25 miles north of Dallas with more than 120 stores. Nine people were pronounced dead, including the gunman, and at least seven others were injured. Investigators want to know more about the gunman's motives, in part to determine whether the attack may have been connected to any wider threat to public safety that may persist even though the gunman is dead. Two law enforcement officials say Mr. Garcia appeared to espouse white supremacist ideology, though it was not yet determined whether the shooting was an act of domestic terrorism. After the shooting on Saturday, the gunman was wearing a patch that said RWDS, an abbreviation known to stand for right-wing death squad, according to one official. The phrase harks back to General Augusto uh, Pinochet's violent right-wing regime in Chile in the 1970s and 1980s. The Pinochet government was notorious for assembling death squads that murdered their left leftist enemies. More recently, neo-Nazi groups in the United States and members of other far-right organizations like the Proud Boys have claimed the phrase and often wear the abbreviation on clothing or patches. The Proud Boys in particular often combine RWDS labels with shirts reading, Pinochet did nothing wrong. The online profile being investigated also includes several pictures showing a black tactical vest with an RWDS patch. The patch has a shape of a shield with a notch in its upper right corner. An echo, experts say, of similar patches worn by Nazi SS units. In addition, the profile includes a screenshot from Google Maps showing the time at which the mall where the shooting took place was likely to be busiest. Though the writer of the post suggests several times that they are of Hispanic origin, at one point indicating that they are originally from Mexico, there is also a clear embrace of white supremacy, or embrace, excuse me, my gosh, embrace is not a word. As recently as last month, the account contained a post saying that, quote, white people and Hispanics have a lot in common. 
The identities of the shooting victims has not yet been released, another factor that leaves the motive murky. Even so, one fact weighed heavily on the suburban community outside Dallas where the murders occurred. There were children among the victims. Although the police would not indicate how many children died, officials, including President Biden, acknowledged that there were more than one. The ages of the seven people injured in the shooting range from 5 to 61, according to a spokesman for Medical City Healthcare, the hospital system treating some of the patients. As of Sunday afternoon, one patient has been transferred to a children's hospital and was in fair condition. Three patients, their exact ages not yet released, remained in critical condition, while the others were in fair condition. According to Oscar uh, Villarreal, a lieutenant in the State's Department of Public Safety, for one man who saw a young victim up close, the memory was devastating. In the moments after the shooting, as people fled the shopping mall in panic, Stephen Spainhauer sped in his car in search of his son, an H&M employee, who had called him minutes earlier about an active shooter. Mr. Spainhauer, a former police officer and Army captain who was 63, said that when he pulled into the parking lot, he did not see any police officers and everything was quiet. He said that as he approached the H&M store, he found the window shot out and several people lying in the ground, including a child lying in some bushes. He saw her in a, prayer, in a praying position with her head tucked down between her knees. Mr. Spainhauer reached to feel for a pulse. There was none. Then he turned her head to ask if she was okay. She had no face, he said. At a news conference in Austin on Monday, Governor Greg Abbott said it remained too early to draw conclusions to develop policies in response to the shooting in Allen. The first step to leading to some kind of resolution here, as well as providing information about the response needed from the state of Texas, is to know exactly why and how this happened. He said when asked if more could be done to keep AR-15 style weapons out of the hands of people like the shooter. Quote, I believe in the coming days the public will be much better informed about why and how this happened. End quote. The governor continued. And that, and that will inform us as Texas leaders about next steps to take to try to prevent crimes like this from taking place in the future. On Sunday night, Mr. Abbott joined Bain Brooks, the mayor-elect of Allen, and other officials at a prayer vigil in Cottonwood Creek Church in Allen. Mr. Brooks mourned the kids that were too quote, the kids that were to show up at home, quote, or end quote, and no longer were. Kelly Lee, who lives in nearby McKinney, north of Allen, attended the prayer vigil as well. She said that she often went to the outlet mall, but she was not there on Saturday. Miss Lee picked up flowers on the way to the vigil and planned to drop them off at a makeshift memorial by the mall. She took her head and wiped away tears. Quote, I don't know why this is happening with our country, end quote, she said. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. It's been about 15 minutes. I'm going to continue. The next article is titled Panic and Shortages in Part... Oh, excuse me, wrong article. Not the one I wanted to read. The actual article says, Before Dylan, there was a Connie Converse or Converse. Then she vanished. There's a resurgence of interest in the pioneering singer-songwriter who disappeared when she was 50. This is an article from May 6, 2023, written by Howard Fishman. There is a picture included of Connie Converse in Riverside Park, 1946. It is one of the best-known images of Miss Converse in New York. It's a black and white still shot. Connie Converse was a pioneer of what come known as the singer-songwriter era, making music in the pre-dawn of a movement that had its roots in the Greenwich Village folk scene of the early 1960s. But her songs, created a decade earlier, arrived just a moment too soon. They didn't catch on. By the time the sun had come up on the form of a young Bob Dylan, she was already gone. Not simply retired. She had vanished from New York City, as she eventually would, from the world, along with her music and her legacy. It wasn't until 20 or 2004 when an NYU student heard a 1954 bootleg recording of Miss Converse on WNYC that her music started to get any of the attention and respect that had evaded her some 50 years before. The student, Dan Zula, and his friend, David Herman, were spellbound by what they heard. They dug up more arch 
archival recordings and assembled the 2009 album, How Sad, How Lovely, a compilation of songs that sound as though they could have been written today. It has been streamed over 16 million times on Spotify. Young musicians like Angel Olsen and Greta Klein now cite Miss Converse as an influence, and musical acts from Big Thief to Laurie Anderson to the opera singer Julia Bullock have covered her songs. She was the female Bob Dylan. Ellen Steckert, a singer, folk music scholar, and song collector, told me during my research for a book about Miss Converse. She was even better than him. As a lyricist and composer, but she didn't know how this showbiz didn't have his showbiz savvy, and she wasn't interested in writing protest songs. 75 years ago, Miss Converse was just another young artist trying to make ends meet in the city, singing at dinner parties and private salons and passing a hat for her performances. She knew that her songs did not jibe with the, oh my gosh, pop of the day. This type of thing always curdles me like a dentist appointment. She wrote to her brother before an audition at Frank Lozer's music publishing company, where she predicted what executives would say of her songs, quote, lovely, but not commercial. In January 1961, the same month that Dylan arrived from the Midwest, Miss Converse left New York for an Ann Arbor, Ann Arbor, Michigan, where she reinvented herself as an editor, a scholar, and an activist. In 1974, a week after her 50th birthday, she disappeared and was never seen again. Miss Converse lived in New York from 1945 to 1960, and though she was intensely private, she kept a diary, scrapbooks, and voluminous correspondence, or voluminous correspondence, that were left behind after she drove away for good, offering clues about what the Manhattan chapter of her life was like. Here are some of the neighborhoods, venues, and sites around the city that provided the musician with the backdrop for her short but trailblazing stint as a songwriter. The 1940s, Bohemians of the Upper West Side, Riverside Park. In 1945, after dropping out of Mount Holyoke College in Massachusetts, Miss Converse moved to New York. Her first job was at the American Institute of Pacific Relations, where she edited and wrote articles about the international affairs. I am struck by the breadth of the topics she covered, said the contemporary international relations scholar Michael R. Anderson, who calls her writing and reporting, quote, remarkable. She lived on the Upper West Side. The image of her in Riverside Park above was found in an old filing cabinet that belonged to the photographer's widow. It is one of the first known images of Miss Converse in New York. Some of Miss Converse's closest friends lived and hung around the Bohemian enclave known as the Lincoln Arcade, a building on Broadway between West 65th and 66th Street. With a reputation as a haven for struggling artists, it had been home to the painter. Robert Henri, Thomas Hart Benton, and George Bellows, the last of whom had lived there with the playwright Eugene O'Neill. The group was a hard-drinking lot, given to holding court late at night. One surviving member of that crew, Edwin Bach, told me that Miss Converse would often be clattering away at a typewriter, at a remote, at a remove from the rest, though sometimes she did things he found shocking, like climbing out the front window well past midnight to stand on a ledge several stories above the street. The 1950s, making music in the village and beyond, 23 Grove Street. Miss Converse lost her job when the Institute landed in the crosshairs of the anti-communist house Un-American Activities Committee. Sometime late in the 1950s, she moved to the West Village and began a new phase of her life as an inspiring aspiring composer and performer. She bought a Crestwood 1404 reel-to-reel tape recorder and began making demos of herself singing new songs as she wrote them. It was here, while living alone in a studio apartment at 23 Grove Street, that Miss Converse wrote almost all of her guitar song catalog, including everything on, quote, how sad, how lovely. The village at that time was, quote, the left bank of Manhattan, the writer Gary Talese told me, and it had, quote, whiffs of the future in it, unquote, in terms of its permissiveness about lifestyle choices. Nicholas Pelagi, a writer and producer, suggested that given her address, Miss Converse, a loner, would have had no problem hanging out by herself at Chum- Chumley's, a former speakeasy. 
The upstart book publisher Grove Press was also just down the block, and she was close to the Nut Club at Sheridan Square, where jazz musicians often played, as well as the more respectable Village Vanguard. Grand Central. Her first and only television appearance was in 1954 on The Morning Show on CBS, hosted that year by Walter Cronkite. Though how Miss Converse secured the appearance and what she played and talked about may have never been known, be known. Shows at this time were broadcast live, no archival footage exists. Because the program was staged in a studio above the main concourse at Grand Central and shown live on a big screen in the hall, everyone busting through the station that morning could have looked up and caught the young musician's one and only brush with success. Miss Converse was extremely close to her younger brother, Phil. When he visited her in the city for the first time, Miss Converse described the reunion in her irregularly kept diary, noting that the two, quote, met like strangers at Grand Central and fell to reminiscing over oysters. Hamilton Heights. In 1955, Miss Converse took up residence at 1605 West 138th Street in Harlem, several blocks away from Strivers Row. There, she shared a three-bedroom flat with her older brother, Paul, his wife, Hyla, and their infant child, P. Bruce, a situation she called a cost-saving measure. The new apartment had an upright piano, which Miss Converse used to compose an opera, now since lost, a series of settings for poems by writers like Dylan Thomas, E.E. E. Cummings, and Edna St. Vincent Millay, and a song cycle based on the myth of Cassandra, who, according to Greek mythology, was given the gift of prophecy, but was then cursed never to be believed. Circle in the Square An avid theatergoer, Miss Converse attended Jose Quintero's 1956 revival of The Iceman Cometh, which made Jason Robarts a star and effectively launched the off-Broadway movement. Did I mention that I saw an in-the-round production of The Iceman Cometh last month? She wrote to Phil and his wife, Jean, that October, some four and a half hours of uncut O'Neill, but only the last 15 minutes found me squirming in my seat. The Blue Angel. All this, Wild nightclub on East 55th Street, unique at the time for being desegregated. Oh, I'm sorry, desegregated. Miss Converse met the cabaret singer Annette Warren, who expressed interest in covering Miss Converse's songs and who would make at least two of them. The Playboy of the Western World, and The Witch and the Wizard, staples of her show for decades to come. 1960, The Lost Tape, Goodbye New York, National Recording Studios. National Recording Studios at 730 Fifth Avenue between West 56 and 57th Streets had been open for only a year when Miss Converse showed up in February 1960 to record an album. It was a solo session that, because she did just one or two takes of each tune, only took a few hours. The recording was a rumor until 2014 when it was unearthed in Phil's basement. An ad man, who was a fan of Miss Converse's music, had procured the recording session for her for free. That album, the only one she made, remains unreleased. Upper West Side. Miss Converse closed the circle of her Manhattan existence by moving back to where she started, the Upper West Side. This time, she lived in a brownstone on West 88th Street, a half block from Central Park. This was her last known New York address. By 1961, she was gone. Her music, mostly made in isolation or at small gatherings, was nearly lost, but for the efforts of her brother Phil, who archived what she, he could. David Garland, who played her music on WNYC in 20, my gosh, 2004 and 2009, and Dan Zula and David Herman, the students who decades later introduced her work to a new generation. The first time I played a Connie Converse song for a friend, she sat instantly, silently, and cried, Mr. Zula said. From that moment, I knew Connie's magic would reach at least a few more people in a deeply personal and special way. He added, Could I have envisioned her blowing up like this when we first put out the record? Absolutely not. But also, yeah, kind of.
You are listening to a reading of articles and features from New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. The second half is going to be from May 10th, today, Wednesday, uh, 2023. The first article is a live update, and it says, George Santos pleads not guilty to fraud charges. Again, it is from the May 10th, 2023 edition of the New York Times. The scandal-plagued congressman who ran on a life story littered with lies was charged with 13 counts, including wire fraud, money laundering, stealing public funds, and lying on federal disclosure forms. And there is a picture of George Santos leaving the courtroom, um, surrounded by police and media in a swarm there. It says, Santos will be released from custody on $500,000 bond and his travel will be restricted. This is from the Central uh, New York. Representative George Santos the Republican whose victory in New York was soon followed by revelations that he had falsified his biography on the campaign trail has been charged with federal prosecutors or by federal prosecutors in a wide-ranging indictment accusing him of wire fraud, money laundering, stealing public funds, and lying on federal disclosure forms. Mr. Santos, 34, pleaded not guilty to all charges at a hearing in federal court on Long Island on Wednesday afternoon. He was released from custody on a $500,000 bond that was secured by three individuals whose identities are not public and his travel will be restricted to New York, Washington, and places in between. At a chaotic scene outside the courthouse, Mr. Santos told reporters that he had thought the charges were a product of a witch hunt. Choosing the same phrase that former President Donald J. Trump had used to describe his own inquiries. Quote, I have to keep fighting to defend my innocence, end quote, Mr. Santos said, and quote, and I'm going to do that. Federal prosecutors say Mr. Santos was involved in three separate schemes. The bulk of the indictment focuses on allegations that Mr. Santos directed an unnamed political consultant to solicit contributions to a company that he falsely claimed was a political fund. Prosecutors say that Mr. Santos used the money for personal expenses including buying designer clothing and making credit card payments. The indictment also accuses Mr. Santos of fraudulently claiming unemployment benefits made available during the coronavirus pandemic. Prosecutors say that Mr. Santos received more than $24,000 in unemployment payments while he was drawing a salary of $120,000 a year from a Florida-based investment firm. And prosecutors say that Mr. Santos knowingly made false statements on financial disclosure forms during both of his congressional campaigns in 2020 and 2022 to mislead the House of Representatives and the public about his finances. The indictment also alleges that Mr. Santos falsely inflated his salary during both campaigns, failed to disclose some income, and lied about the balances in his checking and savings accounts. The charges marked a turn in the fortunes of a first-term congressman who went from a symbol of Republican resurgence to a scandal-plagued political punching bag. But it is unlikely to affect his immediate standing in Congress. Even as a growing number of rank-and-file Republicans are calling for Mr. Santos's resignation, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has signaled that Mr. Santos will be allowed to continue to serve. Mr. Santos has been besieged by questions about his background, his personal wealth, and his campaign finances since last December, when the New York Times and other outlets began reporting on numerous lies about his biography, his education, and work history that he had told voters on the campaign trail. If convicted, Mr. Santos could face up to 20 years in prison for the top counts, according to the U.S. Attorney's Office, which worked with the FBI and the Nassau County District Attorney's Office to investigate. During Wednesday's hearing, Mr. Santos's lawyer said that he would continue with his re-election bid, arguing that Mr. Santos needed to be able to travel outside New York and Washington to, quote, engage in that election activity. The judge said that additional travel, so long as Santos received prior authorization from pre-trial services. Mr. Santos has for months denied any criminal wrongdoing, even as he admitted to lying about going to Uh, Baruch College and playing volleyball there and later working for prestigious Wall Street firms. There is a second article that follows that was just um, listed as of about 3.30 on May 10th. 
Santos faces a criminal charge in Brazil. Even as Representative George Santos surrendered in federal court on Long Island on Wednesday, another criminal case immediately loomed. Brazilian law enforcement authorities will conduct a hearing on Thursday on an allegation of check fraud. The matter, which stemmed from an indictment in an incident in 2008 regarding a stolen checkbook, had been suspended for the better part of a decade because the police were unable to locate him. The case was revived earlier this year and a hearing is scheduled for Thursday. The criminal case in Brazil was first disclosed in a New York Times investigation that uncovered broad discrepancies in his resume and questions about his financial dealings. Just a month before his 20th birthday, Mr. Santos entered a small clothing store in the Brazilian city. Oh gosh, I'm not going to say this right. On Nitero outside Rio de Janeiro. He spent about $700 using a stolen checkbook and a false name court records show. Mr. Santos admitted the fraud to the shop owner in August 2009. Writing on Orcut, a popular social media website in Brazil, quote, I know I screwed up, but I want to pay. In 2010, he and his mother told the police that he had stolen the checkbook of a man his mother used to work for and used it to make fraudulent purchases. A criminal conviction, even for a felony, is not on his own an act that would disqualify a congressional member from holding office. The last time a member of Congress was removed from office for breaking the law was in 2002 when James A. Trafficant Jr. was removed from the House after his conviction on felony, racketeering, and corruption charges. And it does go on to say in a little more of a stem, the 13 federal charges Against George Santos, there are seven counts of wire fraud related to a fraudulent political contribution, solicitation scheme, and an unemployment insurance fraud scheme, three counts of money laundering related to the fraudulent political contribution solicitation scheme, two counts making false statements to the House of Representatives related to materially false statements on personal financial disclosure reports, and one count theft of public funds related to the unemployment insurance fraud scheme. The next article is also from May 10th, 2023, from the New York Times. Who's Queen? Netflix and Egypt spar over an African Cleopatra. Egyptians say the influential streaming service is dragging an ancient queen into a modern and decidedly Western debate about black representation in Hollywood, in which she has no real place. And the article is written by Vivian Lee, again, May 10th, 2023. On this much, at least, everyone can agree. Cleopatra was a formidable queen of ancient Egypt, the last of the Macedonian Greek dynasty founded by Alexander the Great, who went on to even greater posthumous fame as a seductress, immortalized by Shakespeare in Hollywood. Beyond that, many of the details are fuzzy, which is how one of the world's dominant streaming services ended up in an embargo with modern-day Egypt recently, called out by online commentators commenters, excuse me, and even the Egyptian government for casting a black actress to play Cleopatra in the Netflix docudrama series African Queens, which airs on Wednesday. Soon after the show's trailer appeared last month, Netflix was forced to disable comments as they turned into a hostile and occasionally racist pylon. Egypt's Supreme Council, which is the government agency in charge of heritage, declared the show a falsification of Egyptian history. A popular television host accused Netflix of trying to, quote, take over our Egyptian culture. An Egyptian lawyer filed a complaint demanding that the streaming service be shut down in the country. For the show's makers, the four episodes about Cleopatra were a chance to celebrate one of history's most famous women as an African ruler, one they portray as black. But for many Egyptians and historians, that portrayal is at best a misreading and at worst a negation of Egyptian history. Despite her Macedonian Greek lineage, the producers of the show say question marks in her family tree leave room for the possibility that her mother was of another background. The identities of Cleopatra's mother and grandmother are unknown, leading some experts to argue that she was at least partly indigenous Egyptian. 
We don't often get to see or hear stories about black queens, and this was really important for me, as well as for my daughter and just for my community, to be able to show those stories because there are tons of them. Jada Pinkett Smith, who produced African Queens, said in a Netflix-sponsored article about the show, Cleopatra was descended from a line of Macedonian Greek kings who ruled Egypt from 323 BC to 30 BC, when it was annexed by Rome, and many scholars contend that she likely had little, if any, non-Greek blood. The Ptolemies, as all the dynasty's kings were called, tended to marry their own sisters or other relatives, leaving few openings for new blood. Though there is some evidence that she had a uh, Persian, excuse me, ancestor, some scholars say. Statues of Queen Cleopatra confirm that she had Greek features, distinguished by light skin, a drawn-out nose, and thin lips, Egypt's government said on Twitter on April 30th. Modern battles over Cleopatra's heritage and skin color have erupted time after time, finding fresh fuel with each new Hollywood casting, from Elizabeth Taylor, who played her in 1963, to Angelina Jolie, Lady Gaga, and Gal Gadot, all recent contenders to portray her in various projects. Netflix's casting of Adele James, a biracial British actress, is a reflection of Western arguments over Black representation in Hollywood and whether history is too dominated by white narratives that revolve around European primacy. But it's sort of a very different debate in Egypt, where many view identity and race through another's lens. For many Egyptians, the question is whether Egyptians and their ancient ancestors geographical location notwithstanding, are African. Why do some people need Cleopatra to be white? The show's director, Tina uh, Gavari, wrote in a piece defending the casting in Variety last month. I'm sorry, Garavi. Perhaps it's not just that I directed a series that portrays Cleopatra as black, but that I have asked Egyptians to see themselves as Africans, and they are furious at me for that. Egypt sits on the northeast corner of Africa, its relationship with the continent, however, is deeply ambivalent. Today, it holds membership in the African Union and other continental groups. But in Greek and Roman times, historians say Egypt was seen as a major player in the Mediterranean world, the gateway to Africa, rather than fully African. Since Arabs conquered Egypt in the 7th century, bringing the Arabic language and Islam with them, Egyptians have shared more cultural, religious, and linguistic ties with the predominantly Arab and Muslim Middle East and North Africa than with the rest of Africa. The ancestors of today's Egyptians include not only Arabs and native Egyptians, but also Nubians, Greeks, Romans, Turks, uh, Albanians, Western Europeans, and other conquerors. Traders, slaves, and immigrants who landed in Egypt at various points over the last two millenniums. For all its diversity, Egyptian society often prizes light skin and looks down on darker-skinned Egyptians. But many Egyptians and historians say the racist slurs hurled online at Miss James, while abhorrent, distract from the real issue. The show was dragging an ancient queen into the middle of contemporary Western debates in which she has no real place, they argue. How can someone who's not even from my country claim my heritage just because of their skin color, says Yazim el Shaz. Shazli, an Egyptologist and the Deputy Director for Research and Programs at the American Research Center in Egypt. Ancient Egypt and its wonders have long been a trophy in Western culture war wars. In 1987, Martin Bernal's book, Black Athena, argued that European historians had erased Egyptian contributions to ancient Greek culture. Though many scholars argue that much of the evidence is cited, was flawed at best, the book became one of the, excuse me, crucial texts of Afrocentrism, a cultural and political movement that, among other things, seeks to counter ingrained ideas about the supposed inferior, inferiority of African citizen, civilizations. My gosh. According to some Afrocentrists, ancient Egypt was the black African civilization that birthed not only African history and culture, but also world civilization until Europeans plundered its technologies, ideas, and culture. The pyramids and the pharaohs became sources of pride for these Afrocentrists, and Cleopatra, for all her Greek blood, a potential heroine of the movement. Cleopatra reacted to the phenomena of oppression and exploitation as a black woman would, according to the Hamilton College classist Shelley Halley, 
or Haley, a professor of Africana and an expert on Cleopatra who consulted on the Netflix show. She argued that Cleopatra's potentially mixed background made her a person of color. Hence, we embrace her as a sister. This kind of thinking frustrates many Egyptians, historians, and Egyptologists. Egyptians, too, are fiercely proud of the pyramids and the pharaohs, even if they are two millenniums removed, and they would like Afrocentrists who hold such views to back off. For many Egyptians, the pharaohs, whose skin color and ancestry are still a matter of scientific debate, were Egyptian, not African. The black American comedian Kevin Hart was forced to cancel a planned show in Egypt in February after an uproar over his past comments that the pharaohs were black Africans. It does not help that some Afrocentrists hold that modern-day Egyptians descend from Arab invaders who displaced the black Africans of ancient Egypt, a theory many Egyptians consider both offensive and inaccurate. An African-American who's never been to Egypt saying that this is our heritage and modern Egyptians are these Arab invaders is very insulting, Miss El Shazli said. Some historians say that the modern fixation on whether Cleopatra looked like Elizabeth Taylor or Miss James would have felt alien to the ancients. In Cleopatra's time, Alexandria, the capital of her kingdom, was a cosmopolitan port city bustling with Greeks, Jews, ethnic Egyptians, and people from all over who the Cambridge University historian David uh, Abulafia said largely saw themselves as part of the Hellenistic world. They identified by culture and religion, he said, not by skin color. Race is a modern construct of identity politics that's been imposed on our past, said Monica Hanna, an Egyptian Egyptologist. Oh my gosh. Egyptologist. This use and abuse of the past for modern agendas will just hurt everyone because it'll give a distorted view image of the past. Though Egyptian critics of the show have denied any racist motives, some Egyptian commentators say their society's internalized racism and inferiority complexes turned up the volume of the Cleopatra outcry. Unable to take pride in modern-day Egypt's political repression and cratering economy, some Egyptians link their identities to ancient glories or attempt to signal their superiority to the rest of Africa by emphasizing their European roots, said the Egyptian writer. Abdel Rahim Al-Gandhi. Seizing the chance to whip up Egyptian pride, government-owned media dedicated airtime on three different evening talk shows recently to slamming African queens. The same day, a government-owned media conglomerate announced that it would pronounce its own Cleopatra documentary, or produce, excuse me. Its film, it pointedly noted, would be based on the utmost levels of research and accuracy. The next article is from May 10th, 2023 from the New York Times. And actually, this is the reading into it. You've been listening to a reading of articles from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. The next article is May 10th, 2023, entitled, Why Americans Are Smuggling Fruit Roll-Ups Into Israel. Travelers have attempted to sneak in hundreds of pounds of the snack after a TikTok trend drove up demand and emptied store shelves. It is written by Lauren McCarthy. Cocaine, foreign currencies, firearms, all contraband that custom agents are trained to catch. But hundreds of pounds of fruit roll-ups? Welcome to the age of TikTok influence smuggling. Based of, because of a recipe that's spread widely on the social media platform, Fruit Roll-Ups, the American-made fruit leather snack that has been passed out to children at baseball games and slumber parties since the 1980s, has become an obsession in Israel, where shortage means smuggling in the snacks can be highly profitable. But the Israeli government is cracking down. The Israeli tax authority exposed a scheme in a statement on social media last week, saying that inspectors and an undercover unit at Ben... Um, Gurion Airport had caught several people, including Americans, trying to bring excessive amounts of the snacks into the country. The agency has confiscated hundreds of pounds of fruit roll-ups, it said, 661 pounds in one week alone. 
Given that one fruit roll-up weighs in at 0.5 in an ounce, that makes for tens of thousands of individual packages. The reason for it all? People want their ice cream to crunch and they're willing to pay. The trend began earlier this year when Galnar Gavami, an influencer who goes by at Galzi's Dream on TikTok, posted a video of herself wrapping a scoop of mango ice cream in a fruit roll-up, thinking she was just sharing her guilty pleasure. She showed that the fruit roll-up froze instantly around the ice cream and made a hands-friendly dessert that offers a surprising and satisfying crunch. Ms. Gavami's original video now has over 14 million views, and TikTok has been flooded with videos of people trying it out, including some of the official of, from the official Fruit Roll-Ups account, whose social media managers appear to be basking in the overnight success. But the frenzy in Israel left stores across Tel Aviv completely sold out of Fruit Roll-Ups, according to local news reports. When they could get their hands on them, merchants around the country instead started selling individually wrapped fruit roll-ups, which are typically sold in boxes containing several of the snacks, for up to $8 each, the tax authority said, even though a box of 10 fruit roll-ups in the United States is about $3. The market shortage caught the attention of enterprising minds in America. In late April, the agency said an American couple were caught, each carrying a suitcase filled with more then 185 pounds of fruit roll-ups, part of a haul of nearly 375 pounds. The tax authority also shared a video of the unusual discovery, which appeared to show a customs official sifting through several suitcases filled with hundreds, or filled only with hundreds of the smaller silver and red foil packets that far exceeded the legal import limit for an individual entering Israel, which is around 11 pounds of a specific food product. A man's voice in the video can be heard answering why he had filled two check bags with fruit roll-ups. Quote, it had something to do with ice cream, he said, according to the Times of Israel. More recently, another couple was caught with around 70 pounds of fruit roll-ups, according to the agency. Two single passengers were also caught coming from the United States with large amounts, one with nearly 73 pounds of the snacks in suitcases and another traveling with over 143 pounds of them. Last week, Israel's health ministry took a stand and issued a warning against fruit roll-ups writ large. The agency, in a statement on Twitter, called the frenzy and the smuggling attempts madness. The confection, the ministry warned, might be photogenic and trendy, but it's also full of unhealthy sugar and oils. The next article is from May 10th, 2023. It's titled, A New Jersey Mystery, Who Dumped Hundreds of Pounds of Pasta and Why? The police and public works employees responded after 15 wheelbarrow loads of pasta were dumped in mounds along a creek in Old Bridge, New Jersey. The article is written by Mark or Michael Levinson, and I apologize, it is from May 4th, 2023. Ever since she met thousands of her neighbors while running for a local office a few years ago, Nina Jacknowitz, said she has been fielding complaints from fellow residents of Old Bridge, New Jersey, a suburban, suburban town about 30 miles northeast of Trenton. Typically, they call her hoping she can persuade the town to crack down on fireworks or ATVs or pick up trash left on their curbs. But last week, a woman she had met during that unsuccessful campaign called her to report an entirely different problem. Miss Jacknowitz said, There's a pile of pasta dumped on the side of the stream. A scientist by training... Miss uh, Jacknowitz, excuse me, said she jumped in her car to investigate. What she found about 30 feet off the road and less than a mile from her house confirmed that this was more than an overturned bowl of buccini. Someone had apparently dumped hundreds of pounds of spaghetti, macaroni, and alphabet shapes in large piles by the side of a stream in a wooded area where, Miss uh, Jacknowitz said, people often dump construction materials, bed frames, and furniture. There were literally 25 feet of pasta. There was literally 25 feet of pasta that had been dumped, she said. The scene resembled something out of Strega Nona, the classic children's book by Tommy Tomi de Paola, about a kindly grandma witch whose magically overflowing pot floods her, her little town in Italy with pasta. Miss Jacknowitz estimated that 300 to 500 pounds of pasta, 
had been left to congeal in the woods. She documented the pasta with the camera, her camera on her phone, emailed the town official to report the find, and posted the photos on Facebook. Before long, the town was consumed with theories about who might have dumped the pasta and why, especially in a state known for its love of Italian food. Was it a caterer with a last-minute cancellation for a wedding? A restaurant cooking for a football team that never showed up? In Old Bridge, that's all they're talking about, said Denise Bloom, an administrator of a local Facebook group who called it the, quote, Great Pastagate of 2023. Some residents, she said, had been posting photos of a few noodles on the ground and calling their renditions an impasta. When photos of the discarded pasta were shared on a Reddit discussion about all things New Jersey, it became fertile ground for puns and dad jokes. Someone commented, we should send the perpetrators to the state penitentiary or penitentiary. Anthony Esposito, the owner of Via Sposito, an Italian restaurant in Old Bridge that serves spaghetti, linguine, penne, tortellini, and gnocchi, said that he could only speculate about where the pasta might have come from. Nothing from over here, he said on Thursday. I guess whoever did this is feeding the forest. To Miss Jacknowitz, the pasta, previously reported by New Jersey Advanced Media, was evidence of the lack of bulk trash service in Old Bridge, which has about 67,000 residents. It's been a point of contention for many years, she said. In an email on Thursday, with the subject line, pasta dumping, Manchu Shah, the town business administrator, said that after photos of the pasta circulated on Facebook last week, the Department of Public Works visited the site and found, quote, what appeared to be 15 wheelbarrow loads of illegal dumped pasta along a creek in a residential neighborhood. The police department dispatched an officer who took a report. Two Public Works employees then cleaned up the pasta in under an hour and properly disposed of it, Mr. Shaw said. It was not clear if it was a large, if a large fork had been used. Although Ms. Jacknowitz said the pasta had been cooked, Mr. Shaw said it was uncooked pasta that had been removed from its packaging and had softened amid several days of rain. The police department is investigating the matter, Mr. Shaw said. The department did not immediately respond to a phone call and an email on Thursday. Ms. Jacknowitz said that she eventually learned who had dumped the pasta and that it was not a restaurant. I only know that it was not a business, she said. It was a private residence, and I'm in conversation with the family via an individual who knows a family. She declined to reveal more, saying that she did not want the source of the pasta to be subjected to unwanted attention. I laugh now, but it's a lot of pasta, Ms. Jacknowitz said. My hope is that whoever did it is not eating as many carbs as they cooked. You've been listening to a reading of articles and features from the May 2023 issue of the New York Times. Your reader has been Stephanie Walker. Thank you for listening.